Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast, realestateinvestingmastery.com. And uh, we're so glad you're here. I think this was episode number three, but if it's not, I'm uh, just the messenger. But um, we're really excited you guys are here. Alex and I have a special guest on the line. Um, oh, by the way, first, go to our website. Alex and I put together some really, really valuable free bonuses that um, we still are scratching our heads and wondering why we're giving them away for free. But if you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, give us your uh, information and we will get you to a page that has some really, really valuable free bonuses on how I run my business, how Alex runs his business. Uh, we give you some really good content in there about how to find and hire and train your own virtual assistant, what marketing is working today and what's not. Um, really, really good a stuff. Road, a roadmap to profit shows you exactly how much you got to spend to yeah. make what you want to make. All good stuff. Oh, yeah. Very, very good stuff. So we got a we got a guy in the line here, Michael. Michael, Quar is it okay if we give your last name, Michael? You're not wanted by the law or anything? Not, not yet. <laughs> okay. Not wanted yet. Well, how do you pronounce your last name? Corliss? Quarrels like an argument. Quarrels. I don't know how many times in my life I actually had to explain it that way. <laughs> I know what you mean, Mike. Uh, my last name is spelled with a J. J-O-U-N-G-B-L-O-O-D. And I cannot yeah. count the amount of time I, need, I could buy back if I had to explain <laughs> to somebody on the line how it's spelled. And I almost like give in. I'm like, yeah, okay, Youngblood with a Y. Spell it that way. I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I've actually looked into. Can we just change our name? Would that be especially acceptable? Right. <laughs> then I'd have to become an actor to do that first. So <laughs> it's the same with Michael Quarles. So what's the same with your street address? If you live on a really bad street address and you have to spell it out every time, that gets so old. So you know, fast. I've 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 thought. Do people not buy a house because of the street name is kind of wacky or they think it's a little funny or do you think that really has anything to do with anything when I, somebody's buying I a house? Not, I would not. It could be the most gorgeous house with a huge backyard, to, in, you know, backs to trees. But if it's on a street where I have to spell the name five times a day, I, you know, I would not buy it. No. Wow. Interesting. And I think sometimes we should have to vote if we, you know, for the street name. Because there are some there are absolutely ridiculous street names out there. <laughs> or let us change it. <laughs> All right, anyway. Yeah, let us. Hey, um, Michael, you live in um, California, and yeah, yeah. somewhere in the middle, and um, where it's hot. Middle, you know, where it's hot and stinky. Sixth largest economy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, I live in the United States. It's just on the West Coast. So. Right. Um, and I've been there. It's an okay area. I'm not going to bash it because I don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> but uh, I love California. I'm just glad I don't live there anymore. Uh. <laughs> it's it's kind of a unique state, you know. When I talk about yeah. to people about um, marketing and and they tell me if they drove you know 30 minutes they could be in another you know another state and or two states. California, you drive 30 minutes, you haven't gotten anywhere. I know. So. It's a pretty cool state. Okay, so... I happen to live in the desert of California. Right. But. You know, it, what are those hills you drive over the San Gabriel Mountains towards L.A.? Um, where it's real pretty at one time of the year with the wildflowers? Is that, is that the, the grapevine? San... Oh, I don't remember. I don't know. We, we call it the grapevine. And I ha how we, why we call it the grapevine, who knows? Okay. Um, uh. All right, so... Um, 
tell us a little bit, Michael, about your story. Um, when did you get started in real estate investing, first off? And what were you doing before then? Well, I was, um, I'm 49 years young. Okay. So um, I've been in the real estate investment business for 31 years. So that would mean I was 18 years old when I bought my first property. Wow. Um, now, so if I go back 31 years, that makes me feel old now, but I'm, I'm really not. I had, a, I had two choices. I had enlisted into the uh, United States Air Force, and now this was 31 years ago, so imagine that day. Um, the, I qualified for either one of two things. I was either going to go into computer engineering, and that was a long time before Apple computers, and um, or the intelligence division of the Air Force, which I thought was how it must have you know, talk, took the wrong test for that. <laughs> and so I enlisted, and I had a 30-day wait period. Wow. And while I was waiting, I saw this ad in the newspaper that said there was an R2 lot, had no clue what R2 meant, and um, for sale for like $12,500. <laughs> so I called the real estate agent at Century 21, and I made a deal to buy that lot. And then I asked the Air Force if they, if they would not like me anymore. And they said, sure, you can not come in. And um, that was the beginning of my career. Wow. And what a horror story, by the way, to buy a piece of property and not knowing what R2 meant. Um, I learned real fast what it meant. And um, I think I learned how not to invest in real estate on my first transaction. So what is an R2 lot? <laughs> I mean, in our city, anyway, that you could build a, a structure for every 3,000 square feet of land space. So this was about a 7,200-square-foot lot, so I could put two houses or a duplex on the property, which I ended up putting a duplex. Now, backing up, people go, how did you do that at 18? Well, during you know the four years prior to being 18, while I was in high school, I was what I call an indentured servant. Um, that's someone you know that basically has to work for their parents in order to get fed. And my dad was a, um, a masonry contractor. So I was used to pouring concrete and laying bricks and block as a kid. And I thought, well, I could, I could do something with this dirt. And um, had no experience. I couldn't tell you the difference between a sheetrock nail and a framing nail at the time. Um, however, you know, like most people, if you don't know what you don't know, you don't have a lot of fear. So I had no fear, all the ambition in the world, and um, started and it's still standing, by the way. I built this duplex, and it's still there. I drive by. Probably why I can't move out of Bakersfield, because I'm so enamored with my first structure. <laughs> it's about the ugliest building you'd ever see, too. However, there it sits. So that was, you're 18 years old. Um, 18 years old. And so did you lose money in that deal? Or, well, you still own it. So why is it? I know I, I actually made like about 16 grand on it. I, um, so I'll, I'll back it. This is a cute story that people will just, you know, stop listening now. But um, <laughs> I didn't realize when they said we needed a $2,000 deposit check that they expected to cash it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so but, you know, the real estate agent said we need $2,000 deposit check. I said, no problem. Um Maybe gave him a two thousand dollar deposit check. Went on my way. Opened up escrow. Went down to the county. Uh, in high school, I had taken four years of architectural drawing. I thought I might want to become that. 
And so I drew nice little stick drawings of my blueprints and, and um, pulled a permit on a piece of property that was in escrow. Well, knowing a little bit about how to pour concrete, because that's what my dad did, um, set the forms, trenched it, set the forms, had a plumber come out and put plumbing in, poured the concrete, framed the walls, rolled the trusses, and here comes the guy that actually owns the property. And asked me what I was doing, and I said, well, I'm building my duplex. He says, yeah, but you don't own the property yet. I didn't realize that you didn't own the property until escrow closed. Wow. Well, how long did escrow take? So, oh, well, as long as I needed it to take, because I didn't want to pay for the property until I was done building the duplex. <laughs> that was my, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I call that creative. So here, so here I am building a duplex. I had the <laughs> roof on it. And the property owner comes and he says, you can't, you need to stop working. And I said, well, I'm not done yet. And so he said, besides that, your real estate agent needs to talk to you. And I said, well, why did you need to talk to me? It's because your deposit check bounced. Oh, brother. Well, he wasn't supposed to try to cash it. He said it was just a deposit. So nevertheless, so I, I called my real estate agent, who is just at this point beside himself. And um he says, well, the seller is willing as long as you can cover the $2,000 to give you seller financing on your structure. So I said, great. So I came up with the $2,000. And um, then the title company at the time had an issue because now there, were, could, there could be mechanics liens issues on the property because I'm out there billing on something. And so we had title problems. And so we, I think we had to wait for 60 days for close. Wow. Um, I've never heard a story like that before, Michael. That's pretty good. It gets good. better. It absolutely gets better. So with that I, property, or, or what are you saying? No, with that property. Prior to me starting the, you know, when I wanted the, the framing material of the 2x4s and 2x6s and what have you, I went to the local lumber company, and I absolutely had this conversation with the owner of the lumber company. Now, this was way before Home Depot and Lowe's, so this was like your little mom and pop, lumber yard who, who sold everything from wood to shingles to cabinets to carpet kind of thing. So I could buy everything I needed from him to build this duplex. So I went into his office um, prior to starting and introduced myself and said I needed an account. Um, and this was way back before they did anything like run your credit or anything. I was 18 years old. He said, sure, no problem. I said, but I can't pay you until I'm done. <laughs> you didn't hear those words. So, so I have now I own the property. I'm um I have sheetrock in it, we're hanging the sheetrock. And he drives up with the uh, the credit manager from the lumber company and he says hello and I you know, say hello back to him, appreciate the fact that he's doing letting me do what I'm doing. He says we have a problem, and I've heard that word before because that was the last time we had a problem. I had to give someone money. <laughs> so so I, he says, you, you, you see like 90 days past due on your account. And I said, I didn't want to mention his name. I said, but remember when we had that conversation in your office, and I said, I, I can't pay you until I'm done? And he says, okay. He says, how much money do you need to finish? And being, you know, 18 years old, I had no clue, so I just pulled some number out of thin air, and I said, well, I think I could probably finish with $16,000. He 
says, well, you come by my office Monday morning, and we'll have a check for you for $16,000 to finish. Wow. What I learned on that was when you have to have the money in the bank when you put a deposit on a piece of property, yeah. and not to build on it before you own it. But the real thing that I learned is don't let what you don't know get in your way. Excellent. No, that's very important. You've got to, uh, <clears throat> what, what do they say, uh, ready, um, fire, fire, aim. aim. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, being a kid, uh, you know, with, you know, I had this big old red cape on, you know, big old red S on my chest. I was Superman. Um, would I invite anybody to do that same thing? Probably not. But I think that that's probably the one ingredient that is the difference between success and failure. And that is just, I'm going to go do it at all costs. Absolutely. And, um, that's excellent. There is, there is failure with every success. It may not be as large as the success, but there's a lot of little failures on them. During the, during the process. Well, I like to say, you know, if you fail, you're, you're, it doesn't mean you're a failure. There's a difference between failing and being a failure, you know? And, and anybody who fails along the way is just in a learning process. The person that's a failure is the person that throws their hands up in the air and just gives up altogether. So. Yeah, or, or does the same act twice. You know, it's like... At some point, you know not to touch the stove because it's burning. So, mm -hmm. like, turn it off before you touch it again. Um, but, yeah, uh, but there are, you know, and I've known them, and, and bless their hearts, I've known the people that were so afraid of what they didn't know that they never began. And, you know, we're on a one-way trip. We better start. If we don't start, we're not going to end up. <laughs> so, anyway, that was my story, and, I, you know, from there, I... And on and on and on. And it was so, at some point, it felt like I can't make mistakes. Naturally, I was making a mistake every day, but I, it felt like I can't make them because everything is so positive. All you have to do is do it. And um, it was great. It's been great. In my best years. One of my first coaching students, um, she what at the time I was spending a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with her just teaching her the basic step-by-step -step how to do it and um, within like our second meeting she'd already got a deal under contract she called me up was freaking out what do I do what do I do what do I do and so I walked her through it and we sold the property and um, then she got another property a few weeks after that but um, I I really looked at that as a quite a model I tell it to all my students you know look you don't have to understand steps seven and eight before you do steps one and two. You have to start somewhere. You have to start on the marketing or on the uh, – um, basically, it all starts with marketing. But you've got to start there. It's okay if you don't understand how, how it's going to end. That's what we're here to help you do. You don't got to get it right. You just got to get it going. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the reality is, is you know, we have mentors for every aspect of our life, you know, whether there are – a workout partner or spiritual advisor or, um, you know, the people that we love. We have, we have mentors in our life. We should all have one for every aspect, you know, of our business. So, um, now I didn't, I did it the hard way. And, and, and that was probably the biggest mistake I made was, um, I didn't realize when I was young that it was important to have one. And so, um, kind of created the, 
um, a lot of failure or a lot of failures along the way because I didn't have that, that safety net. But um, a good mentor is basically a safety net. You know, their job is to keep us out of hot water. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, I think some people think their job is to do the deals for us. It's real hard for, uh, I think anyway, but um, my personal opinion, it's real hard for a mentor to do that. Well, the other thing too is with a mentor or a coach, um, we, while we preach the ready, fire, aim, you want to make sure you're using the right gun and you're not yeah. shooting something that uh, will backfire on you, I guess. Kind of a lame analogy. but No, that's that's true. But uh, the other thing is as well is how likely are you going to be, you know, be a success or get a deal by doing absolutely nothing or actually going out and, and, and just doing something, you know, just by putting flyers out or putting yeah. bandit signs up or how likely are you to get a deal by just sitting on your hands and doing nothing as opposed to, you know, you may not have the right color bandit sign and you may not have the right um, flyer or the right verbiage, but the fact that you're out there doing it, you know, that's going to put you light years ahead of the person that's just sitting on their hands waiting for everything to ju- be just right. You know, very true. You know, it's the cost of it's the cost of lost opportunity. I mean, in it's huge. The business in, in, in one of the businesses I have now, um, I help people on some of their marketing aspects, and it, that is a conversation we have a lot. Is you know, they're trying to really you know, put that funnel, you know, and, and together. And it's like, what do you say? What's the cost of you not starting right now? And because they really want to just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait until they have everything so perfect in their life. Um, all that missed opportunity is amazing. Um, needing to be perfect isn't as important as needing to be wealthy. No, that's 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 definitely true. I mean, I mean, the cost of opportunity. You can even look at that on the basis of. Well, one of one of my buyers always talked to me about this. He's like, um, you know, if I do this deal that has skinnier numbers, um, it's gonna it it's gonna prevent me from doing another deal that that'll make me more money. So by me spending my time over here on these little numbers, it's costing me even more, even though I'm making a little money, it's going to cost me a lot more in the long run because I'm going to miss one that's coming along with a, with a bigger, uh, profit tag on the back of it. So cost of opportunity is definitely huge. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Michael, talk a little so bit about, first, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I said that was my first, that was my first deal. And, um, there's been some fun ones since, but that, that, you know, when I first decided to tell that story because it sounds like, why would anybody brag about that story? Um, but it actually is something to brag about. I mean, it's it, at the at the core, it's it's saying um, I wasn't going to wait. Yeah. At the core, it said, you know, get off. You know, just start. And, yeah. Um, and you weren't you afraid of making to, mistakes. Well, I wasn't afraid to make the mistakes because I I didn't have that fear component. And I think sometimes um, new investors really should put the blinders on. You know, stop trying looking for something, and just do what we ask you to do. Um, take that, you know, it's our experience that we're in. Take our experience and do the little tasks. Um, anyway, I'm not, I, you know, I've never asked someone to get out of an airplane and just jump. You know, I've made sure that they had the parachute and the backup parachute, and then if those didn't work, someone was on the ground ready to catch them. Um, 
And so you, we, but it's the people that go, well, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Just start. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, didn't worry about it. I just began. And um, Michael, talk about are living in that direction. Michael, talk about where you went from there. What'd you do after that? Um, I, I, my career started in the, what we would call buying raw, raw land and uh, putting on the, the raw land whatever it would, uh, would hold. So went from duplexes to fourplexes to 12plexes to uh, subdivisions. Wow. There was a, so there was a time that the cost to build was less than the cost to purchase. So, um, if that made any sense, it makes sense. So, if I wanted to go out and buy a duplex, that duplex on a retail market, let's say that's two hundred grand. Well, I know that the cost to build that wasn't two hundred thousand, so it was it was more advantageous for me to build it and then resell it. Hmm. Um, at some point, that changed where the cost to purchase was less than the cost to build. Um, and so, when we enter that market, then instead of buying raw land, we need to buy something that has been built on. Um, and so I, I changed from that to um, the other type of investor. Um, and when that paradigm shift happened, um, the light bulb really went off. I really looked at, okay, this, this business is pretty simple. All we do is we go find a seller um, that wants to sell property. We make a presentation. We say certain things, certain ways. They say yes. They sign a contract. We fulfill that contract. Um, and then we go find a buyer have a reverse conversation and then take the buyer's money and go do whatever we want with it. Um, we just do that as many times as we want. It's a good way to put it. Um, and you know, what is there about 12 hours into a real estate transaction from start to finish? Unless we're going to have the paintbrush in our hand. Um, but there's not a lot of, a lot of work for what we do. We just have to do a lot of it. I mean, let's, you know, I, I think real estate investing, if it's a full-time job, is not absolutely not 40 hours a week. Yeah. Unless you're doing a couple hundred houses a, a year, and um, which I did in, I think it was 05 or 06. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Great to do, but uh, what a lot of work. So um, what year was this when you transitioned from building on property um, to buying existing property? I want to I want to say 1998-99. Okay. Now, do you think that was unique to California or just all across the nation? You know, I don't know. It was unique to my area. And keeping in mind, if it was unique to my area, I would imagine unique to everywhere else because I'm in a um, – the cab cost of my our properties here is real low. Yeah. So um, once that changed for us, I imagine it was changing for everybody. Um, but no, and, and I, I – Quite honestly, there was a little bit of boredom. You know, I think like everybody else, once you figure out how to do something, you want to go figure out how to do something else. Yeah. And um, understanding raw land and, you know, the potential is, is great and, um, and building something out was great. I just wanted to go learn something else as well. Um, and then the opportunity was, you know, afforded me because the market shifted a little bit. Um, and what a great market we're in right now. Um, well, yeah, before we get to today's market, Michael, talk a little bit about, because California saw a big, huge boom in real estate from late 90s to 2005, 2006. What were right. you doing then to um, to make money in real estate? What, 
buying houses and selling them. And I, my business model has always been um, not wanting to own real estate. So I'm, okay. I'm one of those people that believes that the best real estate investor is someone that is never on a deed. Uh, that doesn't mean I, I won't have constructive notice on a transaction. Uh, I just That's don't want to have my type of guy. <laughs> okay. yeah. So um, if, if, if I can, you know, all the double words you want to have, if, if I could double close, concurrent close, simultaneous close, that's better. If I could take something subject to um, the existing loan uh, with seller financing, backing it up, that's better. Um, I never want to have exposure. So not wanting to have exposure, and I don't want to fix toilets either, so I'm not the landlord type. Um, the business model is, is getting into finding a seller who, and this may be a little different than some people, I'm not a wholesaler either. So I'm a retailer, but just a little bit off of retail. Um, that doesn't mean I haven't wholesale. My wholesale number is 23000 If someone wants to give me 23000 more than what my contract value is, all day long I will sell it and let them make as much money as they think they can make. Um, the reality is, is, is I have set up a system so I can attract the seller that wants to discount their property. I can make a presentation to that seller and have them agree to, with me to discount the property. Um, and then at the same time, being a broker in California and understanding the, that other side of the fence and understanding the brokerage laws and, and some of the things, um, I know that we have equitable interest in property. And in, in my state, in most states, um, when we have that ability, then we also have the ability to, to um, procure a buyer. We can go as far as putting and advertising that property for sale in the multiple listing service, advertising in the newspaper, we do that. So I was the moment I had a contract signed by a seller, inside of my contract it said, your property is going to the multiple listing service, and the profits that I obtained by reselling it are mine. Um, it was sold before escrow was closed. Um, if I had to push escrow, um, I made a decision either I was going to compensate the seller to push escrow on the purchase side, or my contract calls for a 365-day push on my election. Um, so I was always, I'm always trying to sell that thing before I own it. Um, but that is, that is not the wholesale vehicle. Um, it is absolutely the living vehicle. I think, I, I mean, I always take concurrent or uh, constructive notice. What type of, um, kind of run like a, a deal example that you're talking about. We're not talking about like really ugly houses here. We're, we're talking about livable, livable, inhabitable houses, I'm guessing. The, the, the ugly word's a real unique word for me. Um, <clears throat> I'm, again, you know, 49 years young, and I like having a swimming pool in my backyard and a three-car garage. <laughs> yeah. some, some people would call that ugly because some people want two swimming pools in their backyards <laughs> and they want like, you know, a huge house. And then, then some people would call that really great because they don't have a garage. And um, so when I, when I look at housing, I, I stopped a long time ago um, creating a criteria based upon my desire. So, you know, when I walk into a house, it's, it's a beautiful house. Um, it may smell like money. Um, all I care about is that, does this house, does it represent cash in my pocket at the end of the day? And I learned that the lower end house, the one that would probably classify as ugly, um, that buyer didn't think it was ugly. Right. So that, that buyer, 
that home fit their requirement. Um, and that was, that was a real hard thing for me to stumble over, you know, and get on the other side of. And I walked into a house one time that had brand new tile floors. And I almost fell over because it was so crooked. <laughs> and, then, and then the buyer that they just bought the house, aren't our floors beautiful? And it was like, there's, there was a little paradigm shift for me. So I no longer, you know, use my prejudice of what I think on someone else and what they should think. And so when that happened for me, then I could buy a house that I could see through when I was on the inside. So beauty is in the eye of the beholder or the buyer, if you want to put it that way. Absolutely. And, you know, I, and I tell people, don't go into a home and change the windows. Don't go into the home and change the carpet and the paint color. Go into the home and buy it at an as-is value, not an after-repair value. And then find the buyer that will buy it as is and let that buyer determine what the buyer wants. Because we use, and I think most investors, we put what we want into a house. And so we overbuild the rehab. Um, that's not my job. I'm not a contractor. My job is to buy houses and sell houses. It's not to, you know, make them what I would want to live in. And so um, leave that to someone else. So what would... What would an average deal look like for you? Like, what discount are you normally buying at when you're putting it on the MLS to sell it that way and sell it quick? It's real. It was real simple. Twenty five percent versus twenty five percent or fifty two thousand. So at two hundred four thousand dollars, those numbers change. So whichever is more. So if I'm buying a hundred thousand dollar as is value house, so in today's marketplace, and I'm a real big again, not going to an ARV. Um, that's an interesting I, I model. I absolutely agree. I believe that we should not look at an ARV when we look at, at purchasing. So I look at as is value. I subtract fifty-two grand from it, or twenty-five percent, whichever is greater, um, and that's my value that I can place to purchase. Um, interesting. And again, I instantly put it on the MLS and and go. Um, Because we're always looking at that ARV, and I think the ARV skews the numbers to the seller. When you say, you know, I think you have an ARV of this, and then you take uh, 70% and then 30, you know, minus 30 in repairs, sometimes that ARV can really, like, make a seller think the house is worth more than than it is. But I I like that, looking at it from an as-is perspective, because it makes the numbers more workable, I think. And the big picture for me on that is... It doesn't allow a new investor to get in trouble because a lot of, I, I think there are some investors, new investors out there that think something like this. Well, I'm a handyman or I'm a handy woman. I mean, my, my cousin, Bob, he's a, uh, a plumber and my, I have an electrician friend and I have a painter friend and, and we could buy this and we can make money on rehabbing it. Well, if that's what we want to do, go get your contractor's license and become a contractor. <laughs> Our job. Our job is to buy a house for less than value at what its value is today and not do anything to it unless we want to, but not do anything to it to ca- and cause ourselves to make money. It's the doing things to the house that causes delays and, and rollover or, or turning our funds causes delays and finding other opportunity. And quite frankly, if the market turns and, you know, the market does turn, it causes negative delays. I mean, you know, so all of a sudden now this house that we thought was going to be worth this isn't because six months down the road, the market turned. Um, and then you get the real, you know, the big one where, you know, I've gone into the FISBO and bought a FISBO where they just put in, you know, the the mini blinds that were from the 1950s. 
<laughs> and they painted all the walls with with uh, semi-gloss paint. And it's like, yeah, you did all this, but you actually just decreased the value. So I'd rather not do any of those things. I'd rather find out what the value is, put it in the MLS and go, and let the buyer determine what they want. Now, yeah, if I have minimum standards on an FHA loan, then I have minimum standard requirements um, that we have line items on the HUD-1 for. Um, and most title companies that were closing companies, as long as you have experience with them, um, will allow you to line item repairs, and most lenders will waive the requirement of the repairs in advance to close, as long as you have experience. And so um, it's a blow-and-go business. So again, just to so I'm clear on this, when you are looking at a property, you look at what the current as-is value is. Correct. And you subtract um, either 25% or 52000 whichever is greater. Or 52000 Now, is that just what you figured your average repair costs are going to be, Fifty-two um, I, I We know the, the 52000 is made up of lifestyle and, and costs, average costs. We know that um, we're going to have 11 and a quarter percent concurrent closing costs. And keeping in mind, I'm hiring a real estate agent, um, so I'm, I'm paying commissions on the resale. Um, and I'm, I've got a double escrow, I've got a double title. Um, or closing. Um, I've got transfer taxes. I have uh, a property um, tax kick because I'm buying it for one value and selling it for another value. So I have all those things and I know they're 11 and a quarter percent. Um, day in and day out, that's what that value is going to be. Um, I know on average what I'm going to have to mitigate for repairs on my resale. So although I'll buy a piece of property and I'll have my termite company go out and my Roofing contractor go out and possibly home inspector go out prior to me um, fulfilling my contract to purchase. I'll know what I have to mitigate to my buyer, and so whatever that is, whatever that clear termite's going to cost, whatever that two-year roof search is going to cost, whatever possible items are for health and safety are going to cost me, then I'm going to pull that down off my my resale price. So um, the 52 works. Have you had much of an objection of? Um people uh, saying, well, you're listening to this on the MLS. Why don't I just do that? Absolutely. Um, that's a great point. I've only had one person say you're making 60 grand more than you're buying it from me for. And the reality is unless we, when we make a presentation, and my presentation is fairly scripted. I mean, from the moment that I drive up to the property in my Hummer and park. I think he just went up to you, Alex. Ah, <laughs> well, is it H2 or H3 or what? <laughs> I, 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 this is my third H2 SUT, so I like the like, pickup Hummer kind of thing. Not the pickup Hummer, but the, anyway. So I drive up, I, where I park is important, but my, my presentation is scripted from um, the moment I ask, uh, when I knock on the door, step back six feet, look up the street, so they can have a pretty good view of me because they have never met me before and I want to make sure that they're confident that I am who I am. Uh, they see in my arm that I'm carrying a folder that says I buy houses, so I'm reinforcing who I am, but I'm also reinforcing that I'm there to buy their house. Mm. They see me do a six-pack around their property, so I've knocked on the five neighbors' doors um, and asked those neighbors certain questions. They don't know the questions I'm asking, but it sure does have some intimidation with the seller. Now they know they can't lie to me because they don't know what their neighbors have told me about them. <laughs> and so when you have that seller on the phone that says, yeah, I'm being transferred, 
well, I now know that they're being transferred to the you know, the state pen for something they shouldn't have been doing. So now I have position power with my seller. But when I knock on the door, step back six feet, and wait for them to open the door and introduce myself, my name is Michael Quarles, what I buy houses. Thank you for inviting me out to buy your house today. Another embedded command that I'm going to say eight times through my presentation, out right out of my mouth is, is where I'm parked okay. And I point to my cars, where I'm parked okay. Now, people have asked me, do you drive up your, in your Hummer? It doesn't make them think that, you know, you, you make all this money. Well, sometimes I drive up in my Mercedes. And it doesn't matter to me what I look like and what I drive. What matters to me is that I can endear with them them that I have the ability to perform and I carry out that performance. I think um, that's important. That's very important. Yeah. And so from that, you know, that moment of is where I'm parked okay all the way through, I need you to sign here. Um, it's, it's a presentation. So the seller, I teach the seller in my presentation to, to make a presentation to their family and friends on why they sold it to me at the value they sold it to me. Because if I don't, they're going to unwind the transaction. And Absolutely. I, know I, have I have a contract that says, you know, if you get out of this, you have to pay me 50000 in advance, and it's already stipulated. If I don't teach them to stay inside of the deal, um, it'll unwind. Now, and I go further than that, you know. Everybody has an attorney and everybody has, you know, they know someone in that kind of a profession. But who memorializes a contract? Who has an attorney send out a note that says, hey, I'm Michael's attorney and I just want you to know. We're, and, and who sends out, who has the escrow company memorialize a contract? Who, who sends out the next day a letter saying, hey, thank you for entering into this contract? Anytime that we start acting professional to people, we lose that thing that they may be thinking about us. And we can become professionals. Um, and the moment we can have that act all the way through close of escrow, then we get referrals. And I call it my peanut butter aisle story. I never want to walk into the grocery store wanting peanut butter and see a seller in the peanut butter aisle and not be able to buy my peanut butter. I want to be able to walk down there, shake their hand, thank you for the transaction. Oh, and by the way, who do you know that needs my service? Um, and if we act professional all the way through it, why not? And I tell the people what their house is worth. And that's the biggest thing. People don't. I think some investors get all caught up where you can't tell the seller how much you're going to make. It doesn't matter to the seller how much you make. The only thing that matters to the seller is that you meet the obligation of the agreement that they sign with you. Once they do that, I have a lot of sellers tell me, Mike, we don't care how much money you make. We just want the deal done. Fantastic. And so when I start doing subtract, sub, subtractions from the as-is value for commissions and things like, you know, you know, there's a statement I say in my presentation. Have you seen a, a home inspection report? Oh, my God, it's like three inches. They write a three-inch book about how bad your house is. <laughs> and I know on average I spend $2,500 in repairs just to cover the things on that report. That That's absolutely the, the, true. That's absolutely yeah. true. Every rehab I've ever done, there it comes, you know, and then you can you can account. after Even if the house is sparkling, brand-new stainless steel appliances, everything – you still get that little list that adds up to two to three thousand dollars. The the more perfect the house is, the bigger and the harder it is to close because the person that's buying that house is going to be a little bit more. I don't want to say picky, um, but they're going to require things that the house that isn't perfect that that buyer will require. Um, and so you know we go through this presentation, and one of the biggest things is reminding the person that you can do this deal. You know, there's nothing like, you know, I'm a seller too. And there's nothing more frustrating than entering into a contract uh, with a buyer and 
you know, going through the, you know, the, the escrow process and spending all the money, and then they have that buyer not qualify for a, you know, a loan or have that lender, what's worse is have that lender require that property to be brought up to the minimum standards. That's not going to happen to you. And when you can say those things, there's values that we should put to those things. So because I can close on your deal when you want the day of your choice, that's not the day of my choice. I can close a house anytime I want to close a house. But what day makes you happy? And what's the cost that we put to that making you happy? Um, you know, there's no, absolutely there's nothing wrong with saying to a seller who's on the fence of saying yes or no. So remind me again, were both of you going to move back to Florida or were one of you going to stay here with the house? And they go, oh, no, one of us, we're going to stay here with the house. Which one were you going? Which one of you were going to stay? Because there's a negative to each one of those stories, and it's nothing. There's nothing wrong with us presenting the possibility of that negative. You know, I've opened up the front door with a seller who had a, a vacant house, and the inside of that house was stolen. Um, so I can tell that story. I said, you know, we opened the house, and the cabinets were gone. Mm-hmm. The, the carpet was gone. The toilets were gone. And you know, what was worse. He had that house had been vacant for more than thirty days. Because of that, his insurance lapsed, and he didn't even have insurance to cover what was stolen. You don't want that to happen to you, do you? And you shake your head no. And and all of a sudden, now there's a value we place. So what is it worth to have this deal done today? I think it happens to be worth this amount of value. Can you see yourself? They say, And so I shake my head up and down. They, now they start making their head go up and down, <laughs> and we have a subtraction. So we can get to the 52000 That's real simple, as long as we can ask the tough questions. Um, you know, and the last question we ask is, you know, at the end of the day, I have to make something for taking the the risk. And, you know, in today's marketplace, I don't even know why I buy houses. You <laughs> see them sitting all over the place. They sit on the market for 18 months. But I do. This is what I love. But I have to make something. So what do you think is fair? Because we always want to put that fair word in. What do you think is fair for me to earn um, so you can get on to Florida, so you can get on to do the things that you need to do, so you can get into that next house. And then they say whatever they say. And you just don't, I don't, you know, I don't work for less than a minimum of. And you get them to say yes to that, and you just shut up until they say yes. And all of a sudden, they say yes, and you get a contract. Now, there's one thing that I found a long time ago in my career, and I'm sorry I'm talking so much. Cut me off. No, this is good. I like this. Very good. There's some something I found a long time ago. When they offer me something, stop talking. So when they, when, what typically what happens, we end up, we end up somewhere at a round kitchen table and we're all chatting about life and, and liberty and, and everything. And all have said something. And one of them would say, Mike, do you like a glass of water? And don't ever turn it down. Because when, when someone asks you if you want something that they can give you, they have now accepted you inside of their center. I agree and with so, that. I agree with that. Be it water, be it soda, you know. Don't I be like, them. no, I, I want a soda. <laughs> no, you, well, you know, you don't. I mean, and, and I've been offered beer, and I've taken beers. I've not drank a beer in front of someone. But that doesn't mean I won't open it and have a congratulation toast with them. Absolutely. The moment that they, they give me something, they believed in me. They now believe in me. Um, it's up to that point, we're selling. And this is a sales job just like anybody else's sales job. Up now, to when, that you're, point, we're selling. when you're doing an owner-occupied property, how does this work with realtors are showing the property to um, 
potential, potential buyers. buyers. Yeah. And these you people know, are home and they're like, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, um, as we spoke earlier, you know that my job here as a real estate investor is I'm going to do with the house what I think needs to be done. And I'm going to either rent it out or I'm going to offer it for sale. Most likely offer it for sale. During the process, as the agreement, because we've gone through the agreement, I've explained every paragraph, and on my 10-page contract. 10 um, pages? Wow. Well, you have to have a contract built for everybody. So um, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to um, start seeing um, and finding a buyer. And I'm not going to uh, interfere in your life. But much like those inspectors that we talked about earlier, the roofing contractors and the home inspections and, and some of the other people, We'll make appointments for you um, for people to see the inside of the house. We're not going to inconvenience you, but that's what we're, we're going to be doing. Um, and they all say yes. All, all, however, all is a big word. Some of them say, I don't want to be bothered. Well, fantastic. That is going to get subtraction from the amount of money you get. <laughs> yeah. It is. It yeah, no, is. it makes sense. So because if I have – it's a mitigated cost. You know, if, if it's going to take me longer to sell your house, then I'm going to have the mortgage payments and I'm going to have this. And my, now my money is going to be at risk somehow. And um, so they have, to, they have to pony up. And it's okay. Uh, but very, very few of them want to pony up because I make it painless. Now, to the real estate agent, they all write offers subject to interior inspection. So until I have accepted their offer. Ah, I like that. They don't get to see the inside of it. But you know what? With my iPhone and my cameras, I can take a lot of pictures and put it on the MLS. I mean, I can give a pretty good opinion of that or of what the house looks like. And let's face it, you know, a 1,260-square-foot house on Apple Street looks like the 1,260-square-foot house on Orange Street. For sure. So the buyers have seen it already. They just haven't seen the inside of this one. Well, um, so everything's written subject to interior inspection and... um, That doesn't stop the stupid realtor um, from knocking on the door without making an appointment because they see the lockbox or um, the for sale sign in the front yard. You gotta love stupid realtors. (laughs) Well, being a broker, you know, I I understand that it doesn't take it's not rocket science to pass that test. So um, they're just trying to sell houses for us, and um, we just do deals. Now, do you do the uh, put the um, listing under contract owner? Is that basically the way you would do it? Like when you is- list it on the MLS, it says contract owner because you're not the owner technically. Yeah, the, the, in California, and, and actually it's a um, NARG, National Association of Realtors guidelines for the multiple listing service. Um, it actually says that the seller of the property must authorize the insertion of the property into the multiple listing service. Okay. Now, with wisdom, they have determined that the seller does not equate to the property owner. So a constructive noticed owner isn't the seller. The seller is the person who has constructive notice and has the, the right to sell. I've heard you say that word a lot, constructive notice. What, what would you say that? What is that defined as? Constructive notice is when you place notice in the public's attention that a fact has happened. So um, in our state, it's recording a, a, warrant, uh, a grant deed. So once I record that grant deed, that creates constructive notice. So just because you don't know it doesn't mean you shouldn't, you shouldn't have known it. 
because I had fulfilled my obligation, which is record something. Um, so it it doesn't take that notice to insert a listing into the multiple listing service. It takes um, equitable interest to do that. So it, as long as you can stand up and say, I am the seller and I have the right to sell, then you can insert a, a listing in the MLS. And um, I always put in agent remarks um, subject to seller obtaining constructive notice. So when I, when I accept an offer, because I'm going to accept an offer not being the owner of the property, my offer is contingent upon me having title before I close. Right. I never want to. I never want to get in a situation where I can't buy it from my buyer because my buyer has a three million dollar homeland security lien, which I've had a buyer with that. <laughs> wow. Um, so, um, you know, we want to make sure that we safeguard ourselves by putting some of these terms in our in our offers. Um, but once you have that, then you're you're good to go. And so, how long are you giving yourself to close on your contract? Um, my contracts, they're all written for 60 days, but inside of it, on page two or page three, it says the buyer at the, has the right to extend escrow for 365 days <laughs> at the sole discretion of the buyer. No wonder wow. your contract's 10 pages long. <laughs> well, and, 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 and I'll back it up. It, that sounds like an unfair statement, correct? It sounds funny, yeah, but I mean, it is what it or is. Could, it could be an unfair but we don't deal with transactions that um, are are always in straight lines. Some, right. You know, sometimes we have to fight through the seller that has tax liens and child support, and we have to find the, the relative that also is on title somewhere or should have been, or, you know, the $3 million. And so I tell the sellers on every one of those occasions, you know, I, I'm going to come to you. If I have to extend escrow, I'm going to come to you and say, I need escrow extended but I don't want to have to find you. If you're on vacation, enjoying the fact that you've sold your house, I don't want this deal to fall apart because we need to extend and you're not around. So this is just a provision for me to allow to extend the escrow. Now, I'm, quite frankly, I want to buy this house and sell it as fast as I can because that's the only way I make money. I'm going to put all my resource and my time at risk. So trust me, I'm trying to close. I just need you to know that I have this luxury. Um, so when you explain something that way, it kind of makes sense. Now, as long as we don't um, do bad things, like intentionally know that we have a year option on a property to find a buyer, because I tell everybody, you know, the moment that I know I can't buy your house because of some, some factor that I find out during my inspection process, I'm going to let you know. So you can go sell it to someone else. In fact, I'm going to let you know who I would use to go sell it to someone else. Um, I'm going to give you as much benefit as I can give you. Uh, because I just think that's the human thing to do. It's a moral and ethical thing to do. Uh, by the so, way, my inspection. So let um, bring this uh, down to, um, I guess, tangible terms. So let's say we have a house that's two hundred. Uh, if we take fifty-two off that, we'll be at one forty-eight. Um, right. ARV, uh, not AR. Well, let's say the ARV is two fifty or whatever. But let's say the as-is value. Now you're going to take the fifty-two thousand off the as-is value, right? Correct. I never okay. look at ARV. Okay, so let's say maybe ideally the uh, as is value is one one fifty. So let's take one fifty. Take your twenty five percent of that. It would be actually fifty two. So I'm going to buy the house at ninety eight. 
Okay, so you're going to buy it at 98, and you're going to put it on the MLS for what? The as value. 150. Correct. Okay. And when you do that, guess what you get? You get swamped with people wanting to see you and buy your house. No, you're absolutely you get, right. You're right. Everybody's looking at the ARV value. Well, I don't care about making money on their co- – I'm not a contractor. I'm an investor. So right. if you want to buy it as an investor and sell it to someone else, that's fine. I'm still making my 52. That's my job. If you want to be that other investor, I get it. Go ahead and do it. That's not what I do. And so when I don't, when I don't position myself around possibilities, then I can make more money. It's when we position ourselves around, I hope it works out well because I can make more money. Then we start really looking at the business model, and you know, it's interfering with what we can do and, and every day. And I want a business model that I, I know I put this many letters in the mail, I'm going to get this many phone calls and this many opportunities and this many presentations and this many closings. That's what I want. Um, well, that, that pretty much leads us uh, kind of to the next thing with your, with your marketing. And, uh, Joe, we're probably getting <laughs> close to where we have to wrap this up. But you well, This know, is good stuff. I know. This is, this is awesome. Um, so your marketing, we know um, you do uh, yellow letters, and you're really, really good at that. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, in today's um, – yeah, sure. And it wasn't the intention of the call, so um, we'll try to keep it short. Um, marketing um, is kind of strange, I think, for real estate investors. But we Somehow we have forgotten that we're in, we're in business just like Budweiser and uh, Walmart and Ford and Chevy in that, you know, those companies will spend between 8 and 12% of their, um, their dollar – in advertising and marketing for another dollar. Well, in real estate investing, we've forgotten that. We just think that we're supposed to go out and put a bandit sign up and someone's going to call us and give us 50 grand. <laughs> <laughs> so, but if, if we do it on purpose, we say, okay, I want to make this year $200,000. That means I have to put between sixteen and $24,000 in, in marketing. Um, if we looked at it that way, then we could have a business that is self-sufficient and keeps going and growing. Um, but most investors don't do it that way, so they have that roller coaster business. They put a lot of money in, or a little bit of money in advertising. The phone rings a lot. They stop advertising, do a deal. So they spend all that money, and they don't have any money to market anymore. Um, so the year that I did 200 and some transactions, I spent $600,000 in advertising. <laughs> wow. Were you doing well, TV was- and billboards? Well, it was relative. I was I had a thirty minute infomercial rolling. I had TV awesome. going. I rotating billboards. I had pencils and pins and T-shirts and school lunches. I had um, trailers. I had letters like you know going everywhere. Um, and how much did you make that year? Though you spent six hundred. Oh. I'd rather not say, but let, uh, if you go ba- if you go back to the ten time rule. Yeah. Um, so, okay. It, 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 that's a true number, by the way. That so, if you just uh, if you spend a dime, you will make a dollar. And um, you know, business is about lead generation, lead capture, lead fulfillment, and generating the leads is the key component. And then you have to capture them and then fulfill them. But so, way back in that day, which was only five or six years ago, um, you had to do everything to find the prospect because. We had so much competition, and then every prospect had opportunity. Well, in today's marketplace, not every prospect has opportunity. We don't have the competition anyway. So um, what I mean by that is 
you know, seven years, six, five years ago, no one in, it was in foreclosure. Not no one. There were some people in foreclosure, but that was a rare thing. And if you were in foreclosure, you had enough equity in your property anyway, so you could sell it by the time, you know, status went to trustee sale. Uh, in today's marketplace, no, but half the market doesn't have equity, so half the people you shouldn't be marketing to, um, and then the half that does have equity, depending on your investor, your type, um, some of those you wouldn't want to market to. And so, as a person who flips, um, I only have about 11% of the housing structures that are out there that I can now market to. Right. So TV is cost-beneficial because, you know, that that is on for everybody. And the, the commercials can't say, if you don't have any equity in your property, can you get up and go to the bathroom? You can't do that. So, <laughs> yeah. You have to talk to the people that you need to talk to. So I have chosen um, direct mail because now with especially with some of the list providers that we have today that we didn't have back then, you know, back there before RESPA was really involved in um, real estate, we can go to the title company and through MetroScan, we could do some things, we get lists. Um, but then the, the company started doing some mortgage data lists and what have you. So now... Um, we can actually pull based upon someone's mortgage and their equity base and owner status and occupancy status. And so now I actually know who my prospect is, and so I send them a piece of mail. What I send them and the message that I have, have depends on, upon the person I'm sending it to. Um, but the phone will absolutely ring off the hook from qualified people. Um, who would you say is your best prospect at this point that you mail to regularly? Um, keeping in mind my investment strategy, which is I need someone with a lot of equity in their property. Absolutely. Um, so um, I'm hesitant only because that's a big question. Um, <laughs> ideally, we want to look at um, our opportunities as um, what happens to people in, in life. And so the reality is, is people buy a house when they're in their 30s, typically. Very few people buy a house in their 20s. Um, they typically, when they buy a house in their 30s, buy it as a family house. And so um, it's going to be, you know, three bedrooms probably and a couple baths. Um, if they've owned it long enough for the kids not to be in the home anymore, the home no longer has the same meaning or value that it needed or had at one point. And so if we bought it in our 30s and our kids move out when they're 20, so now we're in our 50s. Um, typically, if we've lived in the same house, that neighborhood has evolved as well. So the demographics of the neighborhood have changed a little bit. The house is now oversized. Very possible that one of us, um, one of the couples, aren't there anymore for me either because of um, choosing to or just not choosing to, but they're not there. The person that's left may not have the wherewithal or desire to keep that house anymore. So, which positions that property at a value that it's mentally less valuable to them than it is um, economically valuable to us. So, it's that that prospect group is typically a prospect group that says, "Just take my house from me." Absolutely. Um, because it, it, it means nothing. It doesn't. It's not liquid to them anymore. Um, or when you know when they bought it, and while they were raising their children, and they had a, uh, the home, it was an asset that they needed to to move someplace else. Now you get that 
that homeowner that's probably having a conversation with children that says, mom or dad, why don't you come live back with us? Or mom and dad who are still available are going, we, you know, let's move someplace else into a nicer area to a smaller house. Or um, they're thinking about going someplace else and um, uh, into a different type of structure. So now, and typically, you know, the older we get, the more money we make, the less m- money means to us. So we don't, you know, it's more of a nuisance than anything else, and so now we can sell it. Um, there's a reason that people sell $15,000 houses when neighbors are on the market for 180. Um, and it's because we, you know, we can solve the problem. They want to just get out of the neighborhood. So I try not to give away who I market to, but I told the kind of the story. So read it between the lines. <laughs> okay. Um, so, and, and then, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we have to find what I call the rat. And, you know, sometimes it has a tail and, you know, runs around on the floor or hides behind the refrigerator. And sometimes it's the reason that they don't want to use a conventional um, means of selling a house. And, you know, that, not that we have to make fun or expose, but actually I think we have to have empathy and some, sometimes sympathy and uh, let them know that no one else is going to see what you just saw um, and that's mm. going to take the pain away. Interesting. And so, you know, I've walked into the house where um, when you have interior deadbolts on a bedroom door, uh-huh. yep. uh, that, and the mom says, I can't get my son to move out, so I'm going to sell my house. I said, it's okay. When we close escrow, I'll make sure that he can get out. And she started just like crying, not because she was sad, but because someone would actually take her pain away. That her son was beating her up, and that's the only thing that she could think of was to sell the house. Wow. Or the superior court judge who, you know, sold his house, and he said, Mike, I know you're going to make 60 grand. I said, you're honor, I absolutely am. Um, but he sold me his house for a reason. And he knew that he was giving me $60,000 for a reason. Um, you know, or the house that has so many fist holes in the walls that, you know, there's anger issues in the house. You know, we don't have to pass judgment. We just have to make money. Absolutely. And, you know, I ask, you know, when I take someone with me um, who's learning presentation or what have you, and we walk into a house that is absolutely has the most horrible stench smell you can imagine. I asked him, I said, does that smell like money to you? He said, no, it smells like garbage. I said, no, it smells like money. Because what we do, someone else won't want to do, and that's why we make the money we make. Um, so. Well, Michael, yeah. you also... Um you also mail to um, you mail a lot of yellow letters. I do. I have yellow letter mail. Yes, um, yellowlettermail.com is your website. Um, tell you you um, you like to mail to obviously owners that have a lot of equity in the home, and right. um, a lot of times you can find absentee owners who have a lot of equity and actual homeowners who have a lot of equity. Um, is there, you have ways to pull those kinds of lists? Yeah, there, we have some really good re- list reporting services now um, available to us. And uh, actually at a good price point. And so it, um, 
it doesn't for me it doesn't make sense to not know who our prospect is before we spend you know the dollar or so for the letter yeah for sure so so we should instead of mailing out five letters to the wrong people why don't we just mail out you know one letter to the right person um also that's not good for my yellow letter business Um, (laughs) (laughs) what what does your yellow letter say michael um, the one that's working the best right now is right at the, the, the most simple one there is. And, and, of course, it really depends on your prospect. So um, I call it the intelligence level. And so the higher intelligent prospect that you have, the longer the letter needs to be. The, um, and the reverse would be true. But the reverse is also true, or that's also true for the investor as well. So... The more uh, talented the investor is, the less the letter has to say. The more the, the less in, um, talented the investor is, the more the letter has to say. So, uh, for my prospect group, I want um, I'm going to send out letters to people that have a, a median price house or less. In fact, if I could, I want to stay to two thirds median. So, if the median house is two hundred thousand, I want to send to the houses that are one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars or less. So I know that prospect group um, probably didn't go to Harvard. Um, they're probably not attorneys. So I'm going to have speak a real simple letter to that person. Basically, just call me. My name is Michael. I want to buy your house at 123 Apple Street. My, this is my phone number. Thanks. Here's my name. Um, if I wanted to send that person that letter, but I was brand new at investing, that letter would create too much response rate for me. So I would send now that prospect a letter that was a little bit more, had a little bit more explanation. I mean, I'm going to buy your house at this address. I buy houses this way because of these things. Please call me. The reason I want to do that is because I don't know how to close as much as I should know how to close or, or t- have that conversation with the people. And the, and the simple letter will just absolutely make people call you. Um, some of those people are going to be irritated. Some of the people are going to be, take me off your list. Some of the people are going to wonder why you're sending them a letter. Some of the people absolutely want to sell your house, their house, and they'll say that. You just come out and buy my house. Some of the people are going to be on the fence. They need to hear you say something before they're committed to, to saying yes. And if you're not educated at what they need to hear, um, that's not the letter. Because uh, you're just going to be busy. Um, so, um, those two things happen. So it really depends on prospect, and then it depends on ability of the investor. Um, so, what would you recommend so for somebody like, somebody just getting started? Um, would you you probably recommend then the um, the longer form yellow letter? If if they had the safety net, and the safety net is someone that they could call and say, "Hey, this seller said this to me. Why did he say this to me?" I'd still send out the little one. If they didn't have that safety net, I absolutely would do a longer letter. Um, it, it, you know, I used to get in the boxing ring and, and hit people and get hit. Um, but I always had someone in my corner that said, Mike, when you go back out there, duck. <laughs> that, that, there was some security in that because someone was keeping their eye out for me. They could see that I, something I wasn't seeing. Um, well, I would never get in the boxing ring if I didn't have a, a, a coach. I mean, I'd get, like, probably killed. Um, so if I had my coach in my corner, 
yeah, I, I do those, the little letter all day long. If I didn't have a coach, absolutely not. I think, That's good. I think I'd be exiting the, the business faster than I entered it because I'd be so in, have so much anxiety. Um, I wouldn't know what to do with it, and, and so I'd just go find something else to do um, because the letters work that well. So grab a coach, someone that you believe in, someone that invests the way that you want to invest, um, and buy some houses. This is, I always tell people this is one of the hardest businesses to learn and the easiest once you do. And part of the, hard factor, is, part of the hard factor is just getting over ourselves. You know, we're engineers and we're doctors and we're truck drivers and we're this and we're that and we forget. Let's just make it simple. Hire someone to teach us and go. Go buy some houses. It's almost like you can't afford not to do that because you're going to pay yeah, for it one yeah. way or the other. Now, I, I walked. I, I was helping someone with the, in rehab, and you know, I walked. Down, Why are you putting windows in this house? Well, because it needs double pane windows. I said, well, <laughs> how many houses on the street have double pane windows? None. Well, then you don't need double pane windows after twelve thousand dollars of an investment. Or you go to you know if, without a coach, you go to Home Depot and you get you know hundred dollar ceiling fans when a sixteen dollar ceiling fan looks the same. <laughs> and how many of those mistakes do you make before you realize? You know, the 10 grand that a coach costs is nothing. So, but people, I, some people don't see it that way. You know, we go to, I'm, and I'm going to stop. So you just got me on a rant. That's good. We go, to a four, we go to a four-year college that if we went to a state college, we're still spending 20 grand. You know, a book at a college, what is that, 200 bucks or 100 bucks? Yeah, absolutely. Just a, a book. Three or 400. Yeah. So we're going to spend, you know, I had uh, an engineer that I was, I was helping, great guy, but he spent a quarter of a million dollars on his education, but he wanted to make a quarter million dollars his first year in real estate without spending any money. Wow. Like, you, you only make 125 now after four, you know, all those years of college. Let's not be unreasonable. So, but anyway. Preach it, brother. <laughs> appreciate the time guys it was fun well that was um, good michael we sure no very it. good great content i wish we could um would chat more because you, you you were saying some things that um are very counterintuitive in a good way um that um just evaluating you gave me some really good tips and just in talking to sellers and um that's a whole subject and topic in itself isn't it but um absolutely yeah. So cool. Uh, hey, um, to find more information about you, Michael, um, what's your favorite website to give to people? Yeah, just just go to the yellowlettermail.com. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things um, I I do my yellow letters because it's it's fun, but it, it, one of the rewards I get out of life is um, talking about real estate with people. So you know, someone's brand new in it and they've never answered the phone with a seller call. You know, I'll send them a seller script and I'll go through how you ask the questions because you just can't ask the questions. You can, I guess, but it won't get anywhere. Um, you know, spend some time with someone, uh, but I absolutely am not replacing um, a coach or a mentor or um, that safety net that everybody should have. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you have anything else, Alex, you wanted to ask Michael before we let him go? 
No, I think uh, I think he, he's covered a lot, given us a lot of great information. I really appreciate it, man. We didn't really yeah, go into I much detail. Uh, we didn't really go into much detail, guys, on on how much business Michael's doing now. But let me tell you, uh, he's doing very very well, and he loves what he does. Um, so that's awesome too that we have somebody like you, Michael, that uh, is in this business doing very well and thoroughly enjoys it. And we appreciate you taking the time to share us, talk to us about that. Well, I appreciate you guys inviting me. It was fun. Well, cool. Um, Have a great. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Alex, we'll talk to you later. Definitely. Hey, everybody. Don't forget, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. Give us your, uh, your name. Email will get you these free bonuses. And we talk a lot about marketing and those bonuses. So I think you'll get a lot of good stuff out of that. And uh, we'll talk to you guys later.